Okay, I got a very interesting email yesterday. I want to find it for you. That's why I apologize. I'm taking out my phone here. But uh, very interesting. Here it is. The email read as follows. I'm not reading the whole thing, but I'll read most of it. It read as follows. Shalom Aleichem, Rabbi Leibowitz. Aleichem Shalom. Okay, my name is whatever. I'm 21 years old. I went to MTA for high school. Then Yeshiva Rakotel. Now I am st- currently serving the IDF. I'm a representative from the Rabbanut for a unit called Oketz. Anyone familiar with this unit in the IDF? Yes. The canine unit. It's probably your friend. Is he 21 years old and went to MTA for high school and then you shiver at Koto? Yeah. Yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. I have nothing embarrassing here. It's good. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, it's, it's all good, Shaila. So, uh, I, and uh, he said, I, he's a representative of the Rabbanut working with the unit called Oketz, which is the IDF's canine unit. Oh, before I forget, someone asked me that the learning should be uh, for her Rabbanit, Rut Bat Ahuva. That's Sir Menashe's wife. So, okay, so, um, so the, he writes as follows. Um, are there any sources on burial for animals, he says. In Oketz, we have a cemetery for the dogs who were killed in action. As a sign of respect and appreciation for those lives we put at risk to spare those of soldiers. In this regard, it seems commendable and even proper. However, it also just seems a bit strange to have a full cemetery with tombstones and all for animals. And in that light, I wasn't sure if it would maybe even be problematic to eulogize and make such a big deal over dogs. One of my uh, close friends, Rabbi Yoni Levin, told me he was just in Eretz Yisrael, and he, he went to this unit, and he said that they mamish give hespedim. They give a, I said, what do they say in the hespedim? He says, I don't know, but they give hespedim for the dogs that, that die. And there's a cemetery, and they call the cemetery, the dog cemetery with the tombstones and everything, they call that the, the, the heart of the base. That that's like the, the neshama of that whole base. That that's like a, a very a rallying point for the, for the entire base. So he says, Tishbav this past year fell out right after the Mifsah had ended, and they had a whole ceremony on Tishbav itself, putting to rest the four dogs killed in operations in Gaza. Different people I spoke to had different opinions about this, ranging from it being matim for the theme of the day, to it being completely inappropriate. I wanted to know if you had a say on this matter. Did you hear the question? So, so, what's, so what's the question? It's two questions. Number one, in general, is this, like, is this an intelligent thing to be doing, to be uh, uh, masked dogs and burying them and making, making tombstones for them? Is this something that makes any sense? Is this something that Judaism frowns upon, Judaism uh, is in favor of, or Judaism has nothing to say about? Meaning it's just, you know, it's a hobby or something that, we just, uh, that, that the Torah doesn't really have anything, anything to say about. That would be a gray area in Judaism. And second... Uh, what would be the status on Tishbav? On Tishbav, is there is there a problem using Tishbav for an activity like this, for making it a doggy funeral day on Tishbav? So immediately, whenever I get a shayla about animal funerals, it's not the first one, but <laughs> immediately when I get a, a shayla about animal funerals, I always forward them to my brother because my brother's Rosh Kolo in Palo Alto. And whatever we think is weird here <laughs> is normal there. <laughs> so, so, I, so I forwarded to my brother. I said, this sounds like a Palo Alto, Shaila. So he gets back to me and he says, this is not a Palo Alto, Shaila, because this fellow finds a dog cemetery to be strange. No one here would find it strange. <laughs> then he says, kidding aside, 
I don't get the point. Do they think that by showing honor to the dogs, they'll be able to recruit more dogs willing to be Moser and Efesh? That's, that's his, his kasha on the whole, the whole thing. So what's the first thing that, the first thing, he has more to say, but not for recordings. He has a, <laughs> he's a little salty. So, so there's a, <laughs> after shit. So the, 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 uh, what's, what's the, uh, what's the first thought that comes to mind from a Torah perspective? First thought that comes to mind when you hear about uh, giving hakaris hatov or proper cover to a dog that was Moser nefesh or whatever, what, what's the first thing you would think of? What? Is it a form of a desire? I don't think it's happened. Ah, oh, so there's a Rashi in last week's parsha. I'm a week late or five days late, six days late. There's a Rashi in Parsh Mishpatim um, that tells us that uh, we know the, the Pasuk tells us that when you have a trefa, if you have an animal that's a trefa, so we're not allowed to eat the trefa, so what do we do? We throw it to the kelev, we give it to the dog, we let the dog eat the trefa. Or, you could sell it to a guy. And Rashi has a halachic comment. The Gemara really discusses that uh, which, which one takes precedence. Is it uh, better to give it to the dog or better to sell it to, sell it to the guy? Whatever it is. But the, the Rashi comments that why is it, of all the animals we could have chosen, all the, the, the Pashtas of the Pasuk is, the Pasuk is telling me that even though you're not allowed to eat a trefa, you're allowed to get hana from a trefa. So you want to give it to a dog, you can give it to a dog. Same is true of Nevela. Trefa and Nevela are kimat the same Isser, meaning they have the same types of gedarim of the, of the Isser. Even though they're defined, they mean different things. Nevela is an animal that died without the benefit of Shechita. Trefa is an animal that died with Shechita, but then we discovered that it was diseased at the time in a way that it was going to die anyway, so therefore it's, uh, it's not kosher. They say Reb Chaim's Bar Mitzvah Pshatel. Chaim Salvechik's Bar Mitzvah Pshatel was to, to try to, try to be mochiach, that Nevela and Trefa be Yisodam are Yisrechad. That they, 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 it's the same Yisod. That Pshat and Trefa is not that it had a kosher Shechita, Elamai, it's just, uh, it was just sick. Pshat and Trefa, that, that it wasn't Nitan the Shechita. That since it was a Trefa, a Shechita can't be Chal on it. You know, like your average Bar Mitzvah boy would think of something like that. It's such a fine idea. Such a, you know, such a, he says that, that it's not Nitan the Shechita. That it's not, uh, I assume he also said, Bereshos, my parents, <laughs> honored rabbis, whatever, that's the same thing. So the, that it's not Nitan the Shechita. And that was his, his, uh, his pshatl. So Nevela is also, Nevela is that it didn't have Shechita, and Trefa is that it couldn't have Shechita. So it's the same Isser. But whatever, whatever the Isser is, both Nevela and Trefa, you give it to the dog. So Rashi says, the point is that it's Mutabana. Why do you have to say give it to the dog? You can give it to your anything. If you have a pet, uh, have a Talmud that has pet snakes, he told me he was late to Yeshiva one day this, this, this year, a couple of weeks ago, because uh, he had to rescue a bird that had crashed into his window. And fall. I said, well, what did you do with the bird after you rescued and nursed it back to health? He said, I fed it to my snake. Okay, so, so why don't you give it to your snake? So give, give the, the meat to your snake. Why the Why are you giving it to the dog? So Rashi makes the connection. Rashi says, back to Parsha's bow, that at the time of Makas Bechoros, that the dog didn't wag its tongue, didn't bark at us on the night of Makas Bechoros, why there's a Havamina that it should have been barking at us is a different question that we shouldn't deal with. But because it didn't bark, with us, bark at us in the night of Makas Bechoros, so we're, being, we're giving the schar to the dog, hakaras hatov, to the dog, by giving him the trefa. That it's dafka and inyan to to the dog. So that comes to mind a little bit. What comes to mind even more is the Dasa Kedem Yibali comment on that pasuk of Lakel of Tashlich 
Das Kerem Balitos doesn't bring us back to to Lo Yechretz Kal Vashona. Das Kerem Balitos says, think back to living in a society where you have uh, where you have flocks. You have a, you have a flock of sheep that you need to protect. So what do you do to protect your flock from the wolves? You have a dog. And the dog is Moser Nefesh. That's the Lashon Das Kerem Balitosos. The dog is Moser Nefesh to protect your animals from becoming a trefa, from getting ripped apart, from becoming a trefa or a nevel, from getting ripped apart by the wolves. And because the dog is Moser Nefesh from getting ripped apart by the wolves, we show our Akar Satov to the dog, of Tashlichno. So you give the dog the trefa and nevela. So the notion of having Akar Satov to a dog that's Moser Nefesh, while it may sound a little bit strange, is, is, is something that has a firm Torah source. That there is this inyan of giving Hakar Satov to the dog. Now, what does it mean exactly that we give Hakar Satov to a dog that we're, uh, we're expressing appreciation? Well, in the context of the Torah, so we're giving it something that it can understand. Raw meat, it likes meat, so you're giving it meat. We're giving it something that makes sense for if you want to reward a dog, you give it meat, and the dog is happy. You give it food, the dog is happy. You could uh, sit your dog down and praise it from today until tomorrow, and tell it, or after the dog dies, talk about how wonderful the dog he was, and invite all of the doggy friends and family to the funeral. They don't understand that it's a kavod. They don't say that, so one could argue that that wouldn't be included in that karas hatov, meaning even if there is, there is an Indian of a karas hatov, but Hakarasov means to do something good for it. You're not doing something good for it. You're doing something that may be therapeutic for you if you really like the dog, but it's not doing something for it. It's not doing something that's showing Hakarasov for it. Yeah? Well, I would have I would have said all the way from the beginning that the the, the main point really well, they might not officially say this, the main point of these dog funerals and dog uh, burial places, as you said, Neil, it's the heart of the base. It's for it's for the morale of the soldiers. Ah, very good. I'll get to there in one second. I'll get there in one minute. So I just want to flesh this point out first. I think that's the main point. So I'll get there in a minute. So the, uh, the, the Indian of showing Akar Satov to the dog, on the one hand, is definitely an Indian, but it seems that the gather of that Indian in the Torah is to do something that the dog appreciates. Whereas making a eulogy for it is not something that the dog appreciates. But on the other hand, we do have an Indian of Akar Satov even to things that can't appreciate the Hakara Satov that we're, that we're showing to it. Where do we find that in Chumash? Right? Namayim, Lechol, Moshe Rabbeinu. I can't hit the water. I can't hit the sand. I can't, I can't do anything negative. I can't turn the water to blood or the sand. To, I can't do anything that, that, that will affect that which benefited me. Why? Because Hakara Satov. What do you mean? The water doesn't feel your akar satov. It's like it's like the chalas with the busha. You know, they we know you, you cover the chalas because the bread's going to be embarrassed. It's one. It's the only it's the only sheet that we show people know. The Torah gives three reasons why we cover the. Okay, but that's the one that people like. So you you uh, you cover the chala for whatever. But the, it doesn't. It, the water doesn't feel anything. The chalas don't feel anything. The sand doesn't feel anything. The 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 impression that you get. Is that Hakarasat Rechaim Shmulevitz, I think, has a shmuz about this in one of the Sikhs Musr, about how, how powerful Hakarasatov is, that even if that which is the recipient of your Hakarasatov has no appreciation or understanding of the Hakarasatov, it's still a high value. Rechaim goes a step further in the Medrash about the, uh, the Benos Yisro coming back to Yisro and saying, Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu. So the Medrash says, Who is the Ish Mitzri Hitzilanu? So Pashtus is, 
Moshe Rabbeinu looked like an Egyptian. He was, according to the movie, the prince of Egypt, right? So he looked like an Egyptian. And they said, Ishmitzri Yitzilanu, a guy who looks like an Egyptian, saved us. But the Medrash says, no, who's the Ishmitzri Yitzilanu? Moshe was only there to save them because he had to flee Egypt. Why did he have to flee Egypt? Because there was an Ishmitzri, Make Ishivri, and he had to kill, and he killed the Ishmitzri. And then when he saw the two Jews fighting the next day, one of the Jews said to, to Moshe Rabbeinu, why are you going to kill me like you did the Mitzri? And he made it very obvious that, that the word was out and that he was going to be in big trouble. So Moshe Rabbeinu only had to flee because of that Mitzri that got killed by Moshe in the first place. And that's why Ish Mitzri Yitzilanu. Adka in the Midov HaKar Satov says, says Reb Chaim Shmulevitz that, that the Mitzri, by getting killed, by being in the right place at the right time and assaulting that Jew, saved us. Because if not for that Mitzri, Moshe wouldn't have been in, in, in where he was and he wouldn't have been able to save us. That's how you see, that's how big HaKar Satov. Now the Mitzri is dead already and they're showing HaKar Satov to the Mitzri. So you see the idea is, and the Mitzri certainly had no intention of doing anything good to anybody at that point in time, and still you see that there's an Indian of Akar Satov. So apparently Akar Satov is Alderich Musr, not Alderich Halacha, but Alderich Musr. Akar Satov makes sense even when the recipient of that Akar Satov can't feel the Akar Satov. That's on, 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 on the one hand, that there is this Indian of Akar Satov, and to, ha- to be Makir Tov to dogs, to a unit of dogs, that saves Jewish lives, which apparently it does, it actually saves Jewish lives, is a positive Indian. The question is, what is the appropriate way to do that without actually humanizing the dogs? Yeah? Yeah, the issue to be the person, also by the water, that's avoiding a negative, it's not doing a positive. Or you're preventing yourself from hitting the water. But you're not yeah, but why is that a negative? It's water. True, you're not being cut for it, though. Right. So I think. So I was trying. I was trying to like pinpoint why that made me uneasy. Probably the same reasons. Making so trying. What is it about the doggy funeral that makes it that makes me so uneasy? And I thought it was. It's that you're humanizing it. That you're you're treating it like a person. To have tombstones. You ever visit the Ben and Jerry's factory? No. Anyone ever visit? In the Ben and Jerry's factory in. Um, We'll, we'll take a trip, a sheer trip. In the, in the, I think where is it in Maine or something? They they they, they have um, they have they have a cemetery for the dead flavors, the flavors that didn't make it. So they have like and they have it with the tombstone and it explains why the flavor didn't make it. You know, tasted like vomit. You know, or something like that. You know what 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 didn't go right about the flavor? So it. it and with ice cream, it's funny because there's no actual pints of ice cream buried underneath there. You know, it's just a, it's a it's a cute joke. But you know, when you're going to take it seriously and treat dogs like human beings, so that rubs you the wrong way a little bit. We shouldn't be humanizing dogs. Hakar Satov is one thing, but to treat it like a human being, meaning we didn't find that Moshe Rabbeinu took some water home with him and some sand home with him and adopted them and fed them and dressed them up, and you know, he didn't he didn't treat it like a human being. Treating it like a human being seems to be taking it to a whole new a whole new madrega. But I think the Iker Nukud over here is, is, is the idea that the, the whole hespedim with the funeral, with, the, you know, with the, the burial, is not for the dogs. It's not for the benefit of the dogs. It's for the benefit of the soldiers. Soldiers who are going to be working with dogs all the time and going to be training dogs and are going to be relying on the dogs need to have that kind of emotional connection. Now, I don't know much about it. So I, I, I don't know how important it is but I would imagine it's important. I, I'm not 
I, I'm not a psychologist, and I'm not certainly not an animal psychology or anything like that. Or uh, you know, or, I certainly don't understand the relationship people have with their pets because it never did it for me. I was not you know a pet person. I mean, I happen to have 20 pets at home. They just they all happen to be fish, and they and they stay in their tank. So the the uh, and they're little. So the it freaks people out. I tell my kids, tell tell your friends when they invite them to shops. I hope you don't mind. I have 20 pets. You know, <laughs> they just all happened to be fish so <laughs> the the where was i going with that yes yeah, so i don't really fully understand the whole dynamic of the pet relationship and over here it's not just pets it's that these are these are service dogs let's say a blind person's relationship with his dog or something I, I don't fully understand the dynamic of the relationship but here's what i do know i i came across recently i like to read psycho- psychological literature um at least the stuff that's not written in psychological jargon the stuff that's written in language i can understand um, and recently I came across, they, they did a study, researchers did a study with lab rats, where they told, research, researchers were doing a study on other, using other researchers as their pawns, and they told half the researcher, they told, uh, they told the researchers, These, this group of lab rats was already tested, and they're extraordinarily talented. These are, this is a high-performing level of uh, lab rats that you have here. These are really precious, special lab rats. And then they give them another box of rats, or however they come, I don't know if they come in boxes or whatever, and they said, these lab rats are the average, they're just regular lab rats. And they found that in all of the studies that they did, that, 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 was, that were done in that lab, the high, the one, and, and none of it was true, it was all above mice, so there's no such thing as smart lab, I mean, maybe there is such a thing, but they certainly hadn't tested them. The whole thing wasn't true. And they found that the ones that the researchers believed were High, higher intelligence or higher performing lab rats actually outperformed the average lab rats on every study they did and every test they did. Now, how does a lab rat, what, does a lab rat hear when you talk to him and you say, you're wonderful, you're great. He doesn't hear anything, it doesn't mean anything to him. But what they, what they, what they surmised is that apparently when you, when you think something special, you treat it with a little more care. So when you pick it up, you're going to pick it up more carefully, you're going to put it down more carefully, you're just going to treat things with more care. And an animal reacts to that. When an animal is treated with more care, the animal feels a certain sense of, of love, the animal feels a certain sense of care, and the animal will perform in response to that, which is an amazing thing. Animals, you know, lab rats, they're, they're like a very low-functioning brain. You know, can you imagine what that says about relationships with human beings when you show a certain amount of, uh, of love and you show a certain amount of care to human beings? I remember uh, the Rebbe that, uh, that, that first changed my life when I was in uh, 10th grade, Rabbi Kamenetsky, I read the, 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 it was his first year teaching, and he says to this day, I had no idea what I was doing that year. <laughs> I had no idea how to teach. But there's one thing, first of all, he did know how to teach. I don't know how, but he knew how to teach. And, but, but the other thing was that the thing that struck me most, I remember my brother went to talk to him, and my brother said, I've never met someone who cares so much. He just can't, and it struck me that, yeah, he really, really does. And that made all the difference. That's why he was so successful, just because he cares so much. So obviously it has major implications in terms of our human relationships. But I would think that the same is true with the dogs. You, these dogs are, are involved in missions that will save human lives. Meaning people, this unit of soldiers is relying on these dogs to save Jewish lives, to save human lives. If they're going to rely on these dogs to save human lives, it's probably pretty important that the dogs feel the love. Now, how do the dogs feel the love? Not by eulogizing them, but by eulogizing them, you connect, or the soldier connects, 
more emotionally to the dog, and that's what they meant when they said the dog is the heart of this base. That the dog, that, that the dog cemetery rather, is the heart of this base. When you have that connection, that maybe creates that sense of uh, that sense of love, and that is what the animal is what the animal truly responds to. Now, what about doing it on Tishbev? Is this an appropriate activity for Tishbev? Let's assume that, uh, and obviously we're not posking for the IDF over here. They're going to do what they do with their with their canine unit, and I'm just talking it out. What about on Tishbev? What would you say on Tishbev? Given everything we just said, appropriate, inappropriate? No one has any thoughts. I'll say, I'll say yes. Why? Because that's that's like a solemn day where like you contribute your emotions, and if, and if the whole function is for the soldiers to, to care more about these dogs, then Okay, on Tisha B'Av, a person is in an emotional state, and this way we're maximizing the emotion of the day. I, yeah? So it sounds like you're kind of like using the Mesa Mingdash to... Oh, uh, so, yeah, so the, I, I, I thought it was not appropriate for Tisha B'Av because I thought the halachas of Tisha B'Av are geared, and the halachas of Avelus in general, a lot of times they're misunderstood. The halachas of Avelus are geared toward a couple of goals, but, but one of the primary goals of Avelus is that a person should not have a Hesach Hadas from his Avelus. The reason you don't do Malachi, you don't do Kibbutz, you don't do all these things. What, is doing laundry such a pleasure that you can't do it during Avelus? Well, what's so pleasurable about doing laundry? You, I don't know if any of you know what it feels like to do laundry, but if you ask people who do, who do laundry, they will tell you that it's not so enjoyable, it's not so much fun. To, uh, to do laundry. But it's hasachadas. It's something to do. It gives you something to occupy yourself that will take you away from the Avelus. Hasachadas from the Avelus is not permitted. And that's why Avelim, the halacha is, when you go to be Menachem Avel, so very often a lot of people don't know this. They go to be Menachem Avel and they talk about anything they could possibly talk about other than the Nifter. Well, that's not really what the point is. You're supposed to talk about the Nifter. You're supposed to talk about it's a, the, the focus should be on the Avelis. Now they should talk about the lessons they learned from the Nifter, all the positive attributes, of the, a lot of wonderful things, but you're supposed to actually talk about the Nifter. You're not, supposed to, you're not supposed to make them feel better by making them forget about it. You're supposed to make them feel better, comforted, not better, you're supposed to make them feel comforted by knowing how valuable their relative's life was and what, what that means for them and what that meant for so many other people. And people find great comfort in that. Wow, my relative had such a hashpa, and you had such a hashpa. You know, do you really notice that about him or her or whatever? That's that's a nechama. That's a great nechama. You know, um, when when they they learn that uh, that because of something their relative did, now there's there's some positive outcome of that. You know, they see that that, that gives them a sense that there's that there's a chiyus that the, the relative is still alive because the, the relative is still accomplishing this world after the Harnov massacre. My shul took on a uh, a tefillah initiative to enhance our tefillahs, and we requested that each person in the shul take a kabbalah just until Pesach to uh, to to improve their their tefillah. So uh, so we sent the list of whatever it was a hundred and something kabbalahs to uh, to the families of the of the victims. And uh, one of them got back to us right away and said, you have no idea how comforting this is. To see that he's still being mashpia on people, to improve in their tefillah, and to, it's not to say, oh, forget about it, just, just forget. Let's talk about the Yankees instead. That's not Nechama. Nechama is, and that's not the, the Indian of Avelis. The Indian of Avelis is, let's focus on the Avelis. Same as Tishbav. By Tishbav, we're not supposed to divert our attention from the Avelis of Tishbav. We're supposed to be focused on the Avelis of Tishbav. 
Now, how do we focus on the avails of Tishbav? So, you know, people say, uh, well, then why do we spend half the day talking about the Holocaust? Well, the reason we spend half the day talking about the Holocaust is because that is part of the avails of Tishbav. Mm-hmm. Meaning we view the avails of Tishbav as when we lost the Beis HaMikdash, that allowed for all Jewish tragedies that happened after the Beis HaMikdash. If you just view the Holocaust as a blip on the screen of Jewish history, or, you know, the Churban Bayis Rishon is a blip on the screen of Jewish history, or the Churban Bayis is a blip on the... Or the Inquisition is a blip on the screen of Jewish history. Well, then you're disrespecting all of those tragedies. Because you're not appreciating that it's part of something much, much bigger. It's part of, it's part of a history that's all connected to each other. But to stop start emotionally connecting to the dogs on Tishbav, I think is a misuse of Tishbav. Because that's certainly not the theme of the Yom. So while I appreciate that it may be effective, it may be an effective way of, of creating that emotion which may help this unit in some way, it didn't strike me as something that was appropriate for Tishra. Yeah? If you want to look at it like, very literally, you can still say, you can also like, stretch the Holocaust thing you know, to, to these dogs also, right? Each loss of each dog is essentially the loss of more Jewish lives. Why is it the loss of more Jewish lives? Because these dogs are helping save yourself. You'll get more. What? You'll get more of them. You'll get more, but, but still, you know. That's their job. They're supposed to die for Jewish lives. Meaning, there's something that's like they're willing to sacrifice them for. I don't think so. I, I think that's a, it's too close to the line of uh, humanizing them. That's a couple. Yeah, I mean, it's so subjective to say these well, want to permit these soldiers who've been so touched by these dogs to go visit the cemetery of the dogs, and they should be mastering kind of other ways to stir someone's emotions and. Make them feel like available, such as I express saying this example, certain song. <laughs> Some people listen to certain songs with instruments on them that would remind them of. So they should play uh, doggy love songs. No, not, no, not necessarily dogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying that women's a dog. I'm saying like normal people who are not affected, who are not stirred by by these dogs. So, but, to, so, so, okay, music is certainly a way to stir... Can stir emotion without having to make a cemetery with tombstones. Whatever I want is going to stir my emotion. Right, okay, yeah, that's the nukudah. That's, yeah. that's probably not okay. Isn't the okay. The what? The death of the dogs is directly caused by the Chorban. Yeah, but but that's but it's not a tragedy of the Chorban. You know what I'm saying? I mean, the, we're supposed to be the death of a dog is not a tragedy. It's it's you know it's it's not. It's 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 the death of an animal. It's nature. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you guys now in general. What's our, what's our attitude toward dogs? Should a Jew own dogs or not not own dogs? So th- this is a major discussion also in the in the Achronim. There seems to be a stira in the Gemara Babakama whether a dog is an inherently bad creature. Alpi Kabbalah, apparently, I don't know anything about it, but apparently they say that Alpi Kabbalah, like a dog, is like the lowest creature. Like a dog in Park Shira, it's last. It's like the, the dog is like the worst, uh, the worst creature. There, there are different Gemaras in Baba Kama, though. The Gemara in Baba, in Baba Kama, Daf Tesav and Beis of Nassim says that uh, someone who's Megadal, Kelev Rab, Besoch Beso, is Losasim Dam Vesecha. He's in violation of Losasim Dam Vesecha. They've created a dangerous environment in his home by being Megadal, Kelev Rab. But Rabbi Shemal says Kelev Kufri is okay. Why? Because the Kalev Kufri is known to be a non-dangerous dog. It's a very benign kind of, uh, kind of dogs. So uh, that's okay. But then the Gemara Baba Kamadafayim Tess says that you're not allowed to own a dog unless you chain it down really well. 
And uh, in Daf Pei Gimel, the Gemara says that if you own dogs, there's some sort of klala for someone who owns dogs. So it sounds like owning dogs is a is a bad thing. So the Rambam in the fifth paragraph of Niske Mamon says that you're not allowed to raise any dog unless you secure it with a chain because dogs can cause a lot of damage. They cause a lot of damage with their bite and with their bark. The bark itself scares people, but if you see that it's completely chained down and that it can't move and that it's so, then it's not gonna it's not gonna scare you as much. Well, it depends if you have people in the house. Right. I mean, if you bring people over. Uh-huh. Yeah, you shouldn't scare people. It's not, it's not, not worth scaring people. One of my uh, kids' friends had a dog, and they t- my, son, my son was terrified of, of dogs, and they said, no, no, he's such a nice dog, he doesn't bite, it's fine. And he went to the house, and the dog bit him. So, uh, <laughs> that's, uh, so, so from there, I think, I think after that, they started locking it up. Now, the, 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 the rove Rishonim assume, not like the Rambam, and say that, no, it's an only this sort of a kelavra, of a, of a bad dog. What's the definition of a bad dog? So, a bad dog is a dog that scares people, a dog that bites people, something like that. Rabbi Yaakov Emden is, uh, is very against, Rabbi Yaakov Emden, Shuvis Yaivitz, is very against owning any type of dog. He thinks that dogs are, are all bad. But Pashtas, most people assume that it's just the Kelevra that's a problem. It's not, it's not any Kelev uh, whatsoever that's, that's going to be a problem. But what's clear is that if the dog is of service to you, it protects your flock. It's a it's a service dog for a blind person. It's uh, you know it's it's a dog that detects bombs or anything like that. So that's obviously a very positive thing. Now clearly, th- and those dogs are usually very well trained, and they're not going to scare anybody. They're not going to hurt anybody. They're well trained to do the job that they're supposed to do. So we 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 have great hakara satov to these dogs who are doing their job, and the or better said maybe hakar stov to the ribona shlolem for giving us these tools of a dog who can do this job and help and help save jewish lives and that's a that's a wonderful thing i'm just just pointing out that whether dog ownership is a good thing in general or not a good thing is its own debate and and you know and that's leaving out we once discussed i think uh the whole major halachic issue of neutering the dog which is if you if you don't want the dog to bite everybody and to be aggressive uh you got to neuter the dog but neutering the dog is nisudaraisa so you have that problem also. So that leaves, just leaving that, that whole thing aside, that could be a violation of Nisida Rice. One of my Talmudim told me today that he, he wants to be a vet when he, uh, when he grows up. So I just said, you know, you may want to look into what a vet does all day. Because uh, I said, why do you want to be a vet? He says, because I love animals. I said, you know, the three things, I think, the three things a vet does most frequently are give animals shots, puts animals to sleep, and neuters them. So you're going to love animals, but they're not going to love you very much. So, the, but, but the, and the neutering is Nisida Raisa, so you, you can't even do that. So you'd have to... What? Yep. If it's sick, you're putting it out of its misery. Right. So not only that, you have kids with special needs sometimes, where having a dog is extremely helpful for them. So I think that would be together like a service dog. That they should try to train the dog. That it's uh, now in terms of neutering, you still have to deal with that shayla. That's uh, it's a much harder shayla to deal with. And I think we discussed that once. I'm not going to get into it now. On top of that, is that but that dog is a service, right? But there are certain people who are still afraid of that dog. Like they just they're just afraid of dogs. Like it could be like a nice. I think dog owners should be more sensitive to people who are afraid of dogs. 
I'm saying that as a person who's afraid of dogs. I think dog, dog owners assume, what do you mean? He loves you. He's so good. He's <laughs> No one else finds you cute. You know, <laughs> I think dog owners should be a little more sensitive to that. I, I want to spend the last 10 minutes switching topics a little bit. Second, second Shiloh, this one is a little more halach ha'lamaysa, a lot more halach ha'lamaysa probably. I gave a shir a couple of weeks ago on, oh, by the way, just going forward, next week I think we're going to do a perm shir because two weeks is actually perm, right? So next week we'll do a perm shir. But I want to switch topics. The, uh, I gave a shir a couple of weeks ago on sushi shilas, and I titled the shir when I put it online, sushi shilas, and I got a few angry emails from people. How could you give a shir about sushi shilas and not discuss the number one shila everyone has about sushi? Which is, what bracha do you make on sushi? So uh, that's a, it's a valentina. That's something that, uh, that should be discussed. It is, the, it is the, the number one shayla that people have about sushi. I was more interested in the choshen mishpat sushi shaylas that come from Seder Nashi. But, the, but, but the, the, it's also a, uh, a, a, an important thing to discuss. And not only that, I got an email from a friend of mine who I've never met, but we're email friends. We, we email each other. Uh, um, Rabbi Mendelwitz, who is a, an, a sofer, lives in Eretz Yisrael, he wrote the book, if you ever see the Sefer, Inside Stam. If you don't, if you don't know anything about Stam, or even if you do, um, you know, about what to look for and fill in and mezuzahs and things like that, it's amazing. Amazingly clear, easy to read, and like with such ideas of the Halacha and the Metzius, it's, uh, it's really, really a phenomenal book. So, uh, so I really loved his book, and apparently he listens to some of my shirim, so we email each other back and forth. So he, he sent me the, the following. He sent me, he writes, I, I don't, you see, I don't have much to say, but I have good emails to read, so at least this, this should. <laughs> so he writes, I am rather close with, with Rav Yosef Wiener from Muncie. I think he's the, Viner. he's the, uh, I think he's the, the, the bug expert. Is that true? No? No? I don't know. Okay. No, you know? Okay. He's, he said, Once, about four years ago, when he was here in Eretz Yisrael, I went with him to Rav Nisim Karelet Shlita. Among the very important shilas he felt necessary to ask one of the poske adar was what bracha one makes on sushi. Since he was pretty darn sure Rav Nisim would, wouldn't know what sushi is, he brought along super fancy professional pictures of sushi from a caterer. What? Because he's not going to bring sushi to Israel. I, I could have just bought it somewhere in Bnei Brak. I don't know. Where's he going to buy sushi in Bnei Brak? In spite of the great pictures and our best attempts to explain it to him, Rav Nisim just couldn't get the whole sushi thing down pat. <laughs> and we couldn't get a sock out of him. As we were leaving, I noticed the Rebbitzin in the kitchen. I mentioned to Raviner that maybe she's the one to ask the Shaila to. So he meekly followed me into the kitchen and I asked her if we could ask her a Shaila. She warmly invited us to sit down and asked how she could help. See, such a progressive... We, we, showed her the, <laughs> we showed her the pictures, explained what sushi is, and asked her what bracha should be made. She studied the pictures carefully and lifted her head and said... My father would have said that in such a situation one should wash and not get involved in a shayla. <laughs> I explained to her that we had thought of that eitzah too, but we want to know what the correct bracha is. We're not looking for eitzahs. Again, she said somewhat forcefully, wash and don't get into the shayla. So I said, listen, Lemaisa, no one in America washes tea sushi. And the people want to know what bracha should they make. Without batting an eye, she replied with a smirk, 
Why do the Americans want to know the correct bracha so badly? Because they're such your Shemayim? Well, if they're such your Shemayim, let them wash before they eat their sushi. <laughs> so <laughs> that was that was her response. That doesn't really help us very much in terms of knowing our bracha, because most of us aren't going to wash before we eat the sushi. So there are many rabbanim that are just against sushi. It's like, ah, it's not a Yiddish Michael. It's not something that... <laughs> We, it's hard to be against sushi, especially if you, if you like it. It's, it's, I, I don't think like we have to... So many people will say, okay, so just wash. Why get involved in the, in the Savik Brachos? And, you know, there is a knee-jerk reaction to say that, that's a, you know, a function of the Chumra culture. That, you know, just always be machmir, always be machmir and everything. It's not really a function of the Chumra culture. Or it, it might be, but it's not a misapplication of Chumra. Baleatosos, Rishonim, throughout all of Brachos, and in the, the Postkim and Shulchan always use that Eitzah, that specifically when it comes to issues of brachos, they always recommend, even Rishonim, always recommend, just be machmir and wash. So it's not like a crazy thing to suggest when you have a, a second brachos. I remember one of the post-Kamin Eretz Yisrael in, in Ar Yerushalayim, my friends were there, that lived in Ar Yerushalayim used to tell us that when they asked the post, like, what, what brach would make on a granola bar? I think it was Rebelinson. He used to say, uh, he used to say, a Yerei Shemayim doesn't eat granola bars. <laughs> okay, he made a new rule, but that was the line, that you know, Yerei Shemayim doesn't eat granola bars. So, um, but, but, many other poskim might say that we can pass in the Shailah, and if we can pass in the Shailah, so what's the Psach in the Shailah? So first of all, it's important to know, not only are there are many opinions about Brachon and Mekon Sushi, there are many different types of Sushi. And, they, and there may be nafkaminas in the bracha. There are, by different types of sushi, I mean two things. There are sushis that have different fillings. Some have fish, some only have vegetables, some have fruit, even though I'm sure in Japan they don't have uh, fruit or you know, the things that we put in our sushi. But they, uh, they have all different types of fillings. But also, just the way the sushi is formed. You have the sushi that's the, the, you know, the, the filling on the inside, the fish on the inside, with the seaweed and the rice around it. But then you'll have with the rice and the fish, you know, one layer of fish over it, on top of it. What do they call that? They call it yeah, sashimi or some of sushi, whatever it is. So, so you have that, and then I, you have um, what? Yeah, or avocado on top. You could even get with uh, right. You got all sorts of things. So then they have um, a sushi sandwich, which is my favorite. Uh, that's uh, that's uh, it's very good, right? But uh, <laughs> that, halakhically, that probably has the same status as as the regular sushi rolls. Uh, but so okay, so it's important to know that not all sushi is equal, and also there might be different amounts of rice versus filling in different types of sushi. And sometimes sushi has two types of fillings: it has a vegetable and a fish inside, and sometimes it only has one or the other. So now clearly we know the bracha on rice is a bar minimizonos. We know the bracha on fish is a shakla. We know the bracha on vegetables and avocado, whatever is hadam. So we know what what the brachos, what what the what well, hey, so but, but on other vegetables, right? So we know what, what the brachos uh, what the brachos are for the given for the individual items. But what's the halacha when you put them all together? So this gets into a fairly complicated sugi and brachos, which we'll try to summarize in five minutes now, of Iker and Tafel when it comes to brachos. In the phenomenal sefer, Vizosa Bracha, of Mandelbaum from Harnof, points out that there are three types of Iker v'tafel that you find in Hilchas brachos. Type one of, of Iker v'tafel is you have, someone wants to have a, where the tafel is there, just because it's there to dull, the, you want to eat the Iker, you're not even interested in eating the tafel, 
but the ikr is going to be too overwhelming and you somehow need the tafel just to sort of balance it out. Let's say you're eating something very spicy and you really want to eat the thing that's very spicy, but you need to, to have a cracker with it in order to sort of dull the, uh, the, the harifus of what you're eating. So in that case, the, that's one example of an ikr and tafel. He gives an example, you want to drink a mashkech harif, and you eat with it a little bit of pas, so then you only make a brach on the ikr, and that patters, the tafel, that's clear in Shulchanar, and Simon Rashid Beis, Sif Aleph, Mishbru of there, and Sif Katan Hay, and uh, certainly uh, in this category also would be a tafel that adds color or something else, you know, some, some other side benefit that's not really for the taste, and it's not really because you want the tafel. Type 2 of ikr v'tafel, is sometimes the tafel is chashuv on its own, but it's clearly secondary to your, to, your, to your main dish. And it's still considered a tafel, meaning it's coming lilafes. It's coming as a secondary thing to, to be eaten together with lavdafka in the same bite as a mixture, but together with your main dish. But it's really just a secondary thing. For example, you're having a piece of cake with katsefet, he says, with, uh, with whipped cream on top. So you're not just eating whipped cream, you're having cake with the cream on the top. The cake is the mazonas, the cream is clearly the tafel to, to, the, to the cake. The bracha would be a mazonas. You don't make a separate shahakal on the, uh, on the whipped cream. And then he says you have a third type of ikr in tafel, where the tafel she'enu m'shamesh ikr ki'im mu'urav yachad imo b'tav shalechad. You have two foods that are both chashuv, and they're mixed together as a single food. They're mixed together as a single unit. What do you do when you have that kind of Iker V'tafel? So he says, based on the, the Shulchan Aruch and Simon Reish Ches of Zayin and Simon Reish and, 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 uh, and Yud Beis and the Meshubru there, Sifkat and Aleph, it seems that you should follow the Rov. Whatever the majority of volume is, is what you would follow. If they're both Ma'achalim Chashuvim, and they're both something that you're interested in eating, and they are a Tyrovest, they're mixed together. Now what defines a Tyrovest? What defines a Tyrovest is... Mishabura writes, let's say you have two layers, a lower layer and an upper layer. So if the upper layer is just placed on top of the lower layer, let's say cheese on a cracker, that's not something that's a taroves. But if, let's say, you bake the cheese onto the cracker, then it becomes a taroves. If you take something as one bite and it's all, you know, you would take it as one, it's, it's all one unit, like a, a piece of sushi, that would seem to be a tarovis. That would seem to fit together. The way he says, Tavshil Shabosh Shneima Achalim Mu'uravim Zebazeh Vine'echalim Yachad. They're Olim Bekafachas. You would put them one spoon, you eat them together, and they're mixed together in some way. Wrapped around, I think, would be enough to be called a tarovis. But the other type of sushi, where something's just resting on top of it and it was never cooked together, that might be different. But when it's wrapped around, it's that kind of tarovis, which Luchora, he says, you should follow the rov. And he says, I'll give you a dugma, he says. Let's say you have meat that are, that's mixed together with rice. And the rice is the rov. So meat mixed together with rice. Or, for example, fish mixed together with rice. Or vegetables mixed together with rice. And the rice is the rov. So he says, then you make a barimimimimizonos on the rov. That he quotes from the, the Aruch HaShulchan. And we don't say that the meat is ikr because it's more expensive and it's more chashuv. And he quotes from Ravel Yashiv. He doesn't say Ravel Yashiv. He always quotes from Echad Migdolei Adar. He writes in the Akdama, Ravel Yashiv never wanted to be quoted in the Sefer. So every time I mean Ravel Yashiv, I'm just going to write Echad Migdolei Adar. <laughs> so if you don't read the Akdama, you don't know who he's talking about. But Echad Migdolei Adar is, uh, is Ravel Yashiv. So it's Ravel Yashiv held that way. So he holds that if you have, that it would be pure rov. 
And if the majority is rice, it's a Barim name Zonos. If you ask the internet, they'll tell you that Rav Simcha Bunim Kohn in uh, Lakewood was uh, once picked up a piece of sushi and examined it and put it back down, and they said, what bracha? And he said, Mazonos. He said, you should say Mazonos as well. Rabbi Heinemann thinks that they're both in Iker, and he thinks that the Iker is based on the shame, based on what you call it. Sushi actually means rice. But when you say, I'm getting an Alaska roll of sushi, what you mean by saying, by calling it, by identifying it as an Alaska roll, let's say, is you're saying that it's going to have, I don't know, what does an Alaska roll have? Whatever, some type of fish inside of it. So he says, so since the sushi means rice, and the, the t- way you identify the role is by, is, is by what's, what's filled inside of it. So he thinks they're both in Iker, and therefore he thinks you should say both brachos. That's when the Star K website, Rabbi Heinemann thinks that you should say, you should say both brachos. But uh, uh, Rabbi Mandelbaum, in the, the, the author of his Osa Bracha, again, the Sefer came out before sushi became popular in the Jewish world, but it would seem that according to his Kladen, that it should be a uh, Mazonos, provided that the rice is the majority, which I think it usually is. So that's what I thought also, that a person would never eat a piece of raw fish, and maybe that should, that should make a difference. But like when they have the raw fish on top, you know, people, people do, uh, yeah, people do, pe- but, but people do apparently eat, meaning like sometimes people will peel off the thing and just, you know, once they're eating it anyway. Now, Rav Shechter has told that, that, that if you're, that, that salmon is not subject to bishalakum, because people eat raw salmon all the time in sushi. Yeah, so, think it's not even so, so I, I was wondering, I always thought that it's going to be subject to Bishalakum because people would only eat it raw in sushi. They wouldn't eat it raw outside of sushi. But apparently he thinks that, that's, that, that it's enough. That it's, you know, but by Bishalakum, Nechel Kamoshu Chai would be totally on, on the country that you live in. Um, okay, so the, the X factor over here is the Mishabur and Reish Ches, Sivkan Chavhei, just points out that it's not so clear. Shulchan Rav holds that rice is actually not Orez. Rice is not what the Gemara was referring to as Orez. So that's just an X factor there. But we Paskin it is. So we Paskin that. So I, I would say to make a Mazonos, other Poskin, I mean, Poskin might say, might say otherwise. Okay.